Alright, so here we are in the book of Zechariah. We're in chapter 1. And before we start going through here, just want to point out a few things about this book. Now, obviously all the Bible is important. Alright, we need a, uh, every bit of it's inspired of God. We ought to study all of it. And it's important that we study books like this too because if we're not careful, it's real easy if we're just kind of skipping over books, if we're just like, you know, this book's kind of boring. Uh, I don't really care to know about it then it's going to make it real easy for preachers to preach false things from these books and it go right over our head because of the fact that we're not familiar with that book. We're not, we don't know the context. They can just kind of pull one verse out and run with it and then we just might go along with what they say. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to show you first before we get into this exactly what's going on and why this book is being written. Because you will hear a lot of false doctrine about Israel from this book. There's a lot of prophecies about future things for Israel, things that were future in that time, that have already come to pass. And yet, people today will take things and they'll take those verses and apply it to something in the future for Israel now. And if you do not know the history of this book, then it might, you know you just might go along with that and think, well, maybe they're right. But there, there's a lot of false doctrine about Israel in this book. But I want first, before we get into chapter 1, I want you to turn over to Ezra. Because this is when... Let's look and see exactly when this book was written. Because it says... In, well, verse 1 says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying... So it tells us exactly when. So in the reign of Darius, you all know who he is? He was one that threw Daniel in the lion's den. Darius was one of the heads of the Medes and Persians. So this is obviously after the Babylonian captivity. Because you had Babylon, they held Israel captive for 70 years, and then the Medes and Persians took over. It was during that time when they allowed them to go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So right here... What we're seeing in this book, it's uh, the, the events in Ezra are happening during this time. So the book of Ezra and Zechariah, they go right together. In fact, Zechariah is, Zechariah is even mentioned. It says in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. So the book, uh, or the prophet Haggai, he also um, was that he was a contemporary with Zechariah. In fact, the book of Haggai was written two months before the book of Zechariah. It tells us that. So these guys were pretty much on the scene at the same time. So when you're reading your Bible or when you're reading these books, you know, kind of put your mind during the events of Ezra because that's exactly when they were. In Ezra six fourteen, it says, "And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying." of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So right there we see Zechariah mentioned again. This prophecy that we are about to read this was something that motivated them to get this temple built. Now, this is when they were rebuilding the temple. Keep that in mind because much of this pro- these prophecies in here 
were fulfilled during this day. And so, uh, the book of Haggai, it was also written that same time. It says in uh, Haggai 1 verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, and then jump down to verse 14, it says, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, I'm probably saying that name wrong, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work of the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, and the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of the reign of Darius the king. And then chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord unto Haggai the prophet, saying, so we can see how Haggai comes and he does chapter 1 in the sixth month, he does chapter 2 in the 7th month. And then when you get to the 8th month, that's where we're at right here. By this time, they have begun the work. The work of the Lord has now begun in the first part of this prophecy that we're seeing. And the first part of the book uh, is all done at one time. And then later when we get in the book, we see another vision that came sometime later. We'll talk more about that when we get to it. But I just want to show you all this so you all understand what's going on. Medes and Persians are in charge. They're back there and they have begun the work of the Lord to restore Jerusalem that had been destroyed. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. And now they're about to build a new temple. So, uh, you know, understanding us, or understanding when this is written, it's going to help us when we're going through these prophecies. So make sure you keep all these things in mind. You don't want to forget it. So look at verse 2 of Zechariah chapter 1. It says, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, under whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath He dealt with us. So understand the trouble they got into before, the captivity they got into, it wasn't without plenty of warning from God. It was not without just constant calls to repent. I mean, prophet after prophet is calling on them to repent, telling them all these terrible things are going to happen. And in many ways, Judah had been warned in a great way by the fact that the northern kingdom got taken captive before they did by the Assyrians. And God ended up sparing the southern kingdom during that time because they turned to the Lord, because they called on the Lord. So now, when the prophets come along again after they've backslidden again and saying, listen, just like... God dealt with the northern kingdom because they wouldn't get right. He's going to deal with you if you don't right. They still ignored. They had no excuse to just continually ignore these prophets, yet they did. And so nobody could look at God and say He was you know, overreacting or harsh when, when He judged them. He gave them chance after chance after chance. And God does not want, And now the prophets tell He's warning this next generation. Hey, just like God said He was going to do, He did. Now, that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. If you're doing good, well, just like God sent the bad things like He said He would, 
if we're doing good, God will send the good things like He said He would. That's, that's, that, the fact that God keeps His promises, it can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on what you're doing. If you're doing wrong, it's going to be a bad thing for you. But if you're doing right, it's going to be a good thing. So this is a warning. This is His first message that He gives to them, just warning them basically to hear His words, listen to the prophecies, do what they're supposed to do. All right, now jump, and then verse seven. <clears throat> so now, upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month. All right, now why is this day important? Four and twentieth day of the eleventh month. Because this is November twenty fourth. All right, that's my birthday. This was a special day. All right, now, they they had they had a different calendar back then, but I've always like this day was always special to me in there because it's the twenty fourth day of the eleventh month. But um, yeah, no, I don't think there's anything special on here. But in the month Sebet, in the second year of. Came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were their red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Now, does this remind anybody of anything seeing these red horses going through the earth? Yeah, in Revelation, in the tribulation, right? All right look at what it says in Revelation chapter 6. In verse 3, it says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So notice how in Revelation we have that red horse that obviously represents war. He's going through the earth. Basically, most people would agree getting the world prepared for World War III. That's what's, going, that's what's going on right here. And in this story, we have these red horses that are going through the earth. Why? Because things are at ease. Things are peaceful during this time. And these red horses are basically stirring up the nations, getting them ready for a battle. Okay. Now, what should we do with passages like this? You know, is it okay to take this literally? Are there literally maybe like these demonic red horses that are in the spiritual world that go around? Or is this something that just represents the spiritual forces that are at work that get the wars and things started? Honestly, I really don't care. I mean, if you want to take it literal, fine, symbolic. Either way, one thing we can learn from this is that when it comes to wars in the world, there are evil forces at work behind it. That's all there is to it. Say, well, it's God that's allowing these things. Yeah, God allows bad things to happen sometimes when we're doing wrong. But you know, it's God that protects from that. It's God that can stop that. And one thing you need to realize when it comes to all the warfare and junk in the world that's going on today, there are dark forces behind it. And whenever there's things going on, even in our country, even in the United States of America, alright, the greatest country on earth, there's dark forces at work that get us, you know, get, you know, help get things stirred up, 
so we can go be going fighting battles in other countries. Does anybody really think God wants us just going and bombing, bombing other countries? Obviously, He doesn't. Okay, now, I, I do believe we are allowed to defend ourselves. I believe it's okay for a country to use lethal force to defend themselves. And I'm not saying there's never a time to show some aggression if there is a real threat. But folks, you cannot tell me, uh, you'll never convince me again that it made any sense when a bunch of Saudi nationals flew airplanes into our World Trade Centers, supposedly, and then we go to war with Iraq over that. That doesn't make any sense. Okay? And let, you know, but why is it? Why is it that, you know, and, and I don't want to I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you know, isn't it interesting the way you know certain nations are always kind of the way the alignment usually works in wars. For example, if you go to Ezekiel, look at Gog and Magog. Most of the countries that you see represented there. Most people today, you know, they will align them with the countries that are today, and they're usually the ones that are fighting with each other today. And because of that, they try to say Gog and Magog is something that could be imminent, or something that maybe is going to happen, you know, right after the rapture. That's what a lot of the pre-tribbers are saying. It doesn't make sense to them that things seem like they're in place for that now, yet we teach that it's after the millennium. Well, the truth is, it makes perfect sense to be after the millennium. Because it doesn't matter that it'll be all new people there. The same dark forces that are at work today will be at work a thousand years later when Satan is loose for a little season. So it really doesn't matter who's in charge. And that's why it doesn't matter who's in charge today in the United States. It doesn't matter. Whether it's Trump or Hillary, it's just it doesn't really change anything. Alright, it's just who would you rather look at for the next four years? Alright. I'm glad it was Trump over Hillary, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't think us getting Trump really changed anything. I, I, I don't believe that, and I don't know who's going to be running against Trump in the next election, but I really don't think that it's going to matter that much who gets elected in that situation, because the same dark demonic forces are going to be at work, and as long as our country continues to be wicked we will continue to see our nation go down the toilet. And because God is not going to stop those dark forces that are out there when we're being wicked. So the truth is, if we actually want to change things, we don't need to go campaigning for the right politicians. We don't need to go supporting the Republicans. We need to go win more people to Christ. We need to teach those people who get saved to live godly lives. And maybe if we get rid of some sin in our country God and just add some more righteous people, God just might start blessing our country. And He might make some of our bad leaders start making some good decisions. And God could make Hillary make a good decision just as He could make Trump make a good decision. He said, if you want to get caught up in that fight, I'm all for it. All right? you know, go for it. Have fun with it. Get emotional about it. And you know what? I won't rebuke you either when you're getting all emotional and getting all excited about you know the WWE wrestling and who, you know who's winning that fight. All right, if you get all caught up in that stuff, you get entertained by that. You know, more power to you. But wrestling's fake. All right, <laughs> and so is politics. It, it's it's fake. This is what's at work. These red horses, demonic forces, they are behind the scenes and. 
It's, it's always been that way. So look at verse 12. It says, The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these three score and ten years? So remember, these red horses are going through the earth. They're looking through the earth and they're seeing that the countries are all at ease. They're seeing that things are peaceful. But God is wanting them to stir things up because of the fact that God now needs to bring judgment on the other nations because they touched Israel. They touched the apple of His eye. We'll talk more about that in a later week. That's in the book of Zechariah. And you'll hear people today, don't mess with Israel. You're touching the apple of God's eye. We'll, 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 get, we'll get to that. Okay? We'll, we'll, defi- we'll definitely get to that. But remember, they were God's people then. Now, God used these heathen nations to judge them, but now God's got to judge these heathen nations for touching His people. That's how God works. We see that examples of that uh, many of the minor prophets in the Bible where they go into specifics on that. And so, you know, the prophet here, he's wondering, well, when are you going to deal with these nations? We've been in captivity for 70 years. Things are at peace right now in the world. When are they going to get what's coming to them? Okay? And so it says, and the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. Um, so the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies, and my house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Israel. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Okay, Now, you need to get this here, because once again, if you don't know the context of the book of Zechariah, then one of these dispensational nut jobs can use verses like this to throw you. When they get up, they're like, God's not done with Israel. God will yet choose Jerusalem again. It says it right there. Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. You all realize all the pain and suffering that's going on in Israel? You know, them poor Israelis being oppressed by the Palestinians? Those Palestinians are trying to blow them up just because they're trying to destroy their homes and take their land that they've had for generations? Can you believe those Palestinians won't just listen to what it says in Genesis? And just roll over and say, we're sorry for trespassing on your land. Let us get out of the way. No, and they actually fight back. They fight back at these dirty aggressors that are occupying their land. Well, God promised them that. No, they are not God's people. They have not turned to the Lord. God promised He would drive them out of the land if they didn't follow the Lord. And God kept His promise. And they have not turned to the Lord. It is not their land. And so, you know, understand that this verse right here, this is not something that is for the future. This already happened. He said, I will yet choose Jerusalem again. Now, what does that mean? Because people often like to go and talk about Jerusalem, the city where God's name, God put His name. Jerusalem is God's city. Okay? But now, let's think about this for a minute. God chose Jerusalem, and He says here, I'm going to choose it again. So, that implies 
that it wasn't his at this time. Okay, so what does that mean? So what does it mean to choose Jerusalem? Because this is a good thing to ask a Zionist whenever they tell you the Jews are God's chosen people. Say, explain what chosen means. Chosen for what? Can you please tell me that? Chosen for what? Now they don't they don't usually have a straight answer for that. Well, you know, chosen to have the chosen land. Okay, well, why is that land chosen? What was it chosen for? Okay, what was the city chosen for? Why was it known as the chosen city? Okay, you can't just you know say chosen, chosen, chosen and not tell us what that means. There's a meaning to it. There's a reason for that. And most Zionists today they don't even know what that means. They don't even they don't even know what it is. They've never even bothered to look into it. So what does that mean? Because God said He's going to begin working in Jerusalem again. Now I'm going to show you several verses here if you want to try to follow along. I'm going to jump around. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 13, it says, Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe for thy son David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. And that his own son will I give one tribe, that David my servant may have a light all the way before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. Okay? Now this is this is a reference to you know Rehoboam, God was going to split the kingdom. In reality, it was because of what Solomon did. But he didn't do it in Solomon's day because he was David's son. He ended up doing it in Rehoboam's day, but he didn't completely take it away. He left Jerusalem for the tribe of Judah, for the line of David. The city that God had chosen. Chosen for what? Well, it, that was where the temple was. That was where God put His temple. That's where the sacrifices were made. And during all these years, from the time of Solomon until the Babylonian captivity, the temple was in Jerusalem. The temple was a very, very important place. And for 70 years, there had been no temple. But when God's saying, I'm going to choose, I'm going to yet choose Jerusalem again, it's because God's going to put his temple back there. And look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 21. It says, In the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name there, be too far from thee, then thou shalt kill thy herd of thy flock. He's given some instructions here for these sacrifices that are going to be coming in the future. This is when they're in the wilderness. God has not chosen Jerusalem yet. But he said. He refers to the city that I'm going to choose. And notice, it's referring, it's talking about the sacrifices and things that are going to be done. So he's saying, if the city that I choose, if it's too far from you, he's talking about you can sell it for money. And he's just going through all the instructions on that. But whenever the Bible talks about God choosing Jerusalem, it's a reference to the temple. Because that temple, it was central to them. It was crucial to them. They had to do those sacrifices. They had to keep these things in order to have good standing with God. These things were necessary for them. And God chose Jerusalem as a place where His temple was. Jerusalem was the chosen city because the temple was there. For 70 years there was no temple. God said, I'm going to yet choose Jerusalem again, meaning I'm going to have a temple there again. The sacrifices are going to come back there again. Okay, This isn't something that's coming in the future for us. That already happened. They rebuilt the temple, didn't they? They rebuilt the temple. We read about that in the book of Ezra. There was a temple that was standing during Jesus' day. Why? Because God chose Jerusalem again. So, this is not something that's for the future. Okay? This isn't even something about the present. It says in 1 Kings 8.44, it says, If thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shalt pray unto the Lord toward the city 
which thou hast chosen and toward the house that I have built for thy name. God told him, when you pray, pray towards Jerusalem. Why? Because the temple's there. Now let me ask you, do we pray in any specific direction today? I don't know which way Jerusalem is from here. We don't, we don't pray towards Jerusalem, do we? You know why? I hate to get ahead of myself. We're going to talk a lot about this in some of the future weeks. Because there's a new temple, ladies and gentlemen. First off, our body is the temple of God. Second of all, Jesus Christ is the temple. He dwells inside of us so we can pray facing whatever direction we want. We don't pay, pray facing any specific direction because there's a new chosen city. There's a new chosen one. It's Jesus Christ. All right, so, uh, you know, this, we don't do that anymore. We're not going to practice that. It says in Psalms 122, this is a verse that the Zionists love to bring up. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. I'll pray for Jerusalem every day. Every day I find a dollar, you know, on the street. You know, the Lord does all these things to bless me. I always get the closest parking places uh, when I go to Walmart. You know, the, I won the lottery the other day. You know, the Lord just constantly blessing me. I believe it's because of my prayers for Jerusalem. But notice what it says: Peace be within thy walls, and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee, because the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. Notice the house of the Lord mentioned. Is the house of the Lord in Jerusalem today? No, it is not. So we're not. We don't. If you want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that's fine. But you know, if you want to pray for the peace of Hong Kong, that's fine too. There's quite a bit of turmoil going on there right now. If you want to pray for the peace of Rock Falls, that's fine. You're doing just as much good praying for the peace of Rock Falls or Timbuktu as you are Jerusalem. So pray for whatever city you want, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, but don't ever let some preacher get up and say, like, you know, you're lacking in your prayer life, you ain't praying for Israel. I've seen it in church before. They'll have banners up on the front of their platform, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Man, folks, we're having financial problems around here. We need to get God's blessing on our church. You know what we're going to do? We're going to support some missionaries to Israel. We're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We'll just see what God does. Now, that's, that's, not, that's not how that works. That's not what we're going to do. That's foolish. Jerusalem was the chosen city for the house of the Lord. It is not there anymore. We do not need a temple today in Jerusalem. Whatever happen in, happens in Jerusalem, it will not affect our spiritual life. There's no Levites that we need to worry about whether or not they're going to get the sacrifices done that are supposed to be done. We don't have to worry about that anymore. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is our high priest and He's taking care of things just fine. So we're not worried about... There. What happens in Israel has no impact on our spiritual life. None whatsoever. Jesus Christ has already taken care of everything. So, the sacrifice were completed by the better temple, Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, verse 3. Remember this verse. We're going to have some fun with this one, I think, next week. It says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. That's that future temple that's coming one of these days. No, it's not. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Okay? 
I'm sorry, dispensationalists. I'm sorry, Bill Grady. There's not another temple. Now, there's a fake temple that's going to come for the abomination of desolation, but God has nothing to do with that temple. And there's not going to be a millennial reign temple. I'll probably say some things about that in future weeks on that. Jesus Christ is the temple. So, they just, and they can go suck an egg and drop dead. They're looking for another temple because Jesus Christ is it. So, anyway, so it's important that you understand what that means. Jerusalem, when it's, you know, God, God didn't just call it chosen because it's just a cool word. Because God knew how good the Jews were going to be about marketing the word chosen and God's chosen people and making everybody like, wow, chosen, impressive. And nobody even knows what for. You know, you ought to go to, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you go follow some of these, you know, old people around, you know, visiting all these tourist sites that are all, you know, bound to the chosen people. You know, all these Baptists going over there, getting their picture taken with the chosen people, and just go ask these people. They're practically worshiping the so-called chosen people. Say, hey, man, that, that's cool. They're the chosen people. Chosen for what? And just see what they say. Chosen for what? That's what I want. I want, I want some Zionist. I want I, any Zionist. I want them to tell me from the Bible what they are chosen for. The Jews over there today, I want them to tell me what they are chosen for. Now, I could probably guess which Scriptures they would go to, and I would enjoy greatly hearing them go to those Scriptures. Because of the fact, everything you see them chosen for in the book of Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament, I can show you New Testament where God says we are chosen for those very things. Sounds like somebody got replaced. It's called replacement theology, ladies and gentlemen. Look at verse 18. Zechariah chapter 1. It says, Then lifted I up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, I wish I could tell you what I'm about to tell you is perfection and you know, probably right on the money. But some of this stuff, it gets a little deep. The, the symbolism, it, 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 it can be tough on this. I could be a little off on, on what I'm saying. But I'm going to give you my opinion on what I think this is talking about. So he talks about four horns that scattered Judah, Israel, the northern kingdom, in Jerusalem, alright? Remember, the northern kingdom got scattered first. They got scattered by the Assyrians. After the Assyrians, that's when the Babylonians came. Okay? So you had the Assyrians, then you had the Babylonians, they're the ones that took them captive. Then after that, it was the Medes and the Persians. I personally believe those are the four horns. I believe this is similar to what we see in the book of Daniel, and we don't have time to go over there, but if you go into Daniel chapter 8, um, it men- well, it, in verse 20 it says, The ram which uh, thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eye is the eye of the first king. Okay, so right here, I'm not saying this is like an exact, you know, or like another uh, duplicate vision of what Daniel saw. But I think everyone would agree these horns that are mentioned in Daniel represent different kings and just kind of their might and their power. 
And, he, and Daniel's given these visions to show things that were to come in the future with the, uh, the Greeks, for example. Uh, most people believe a lot of those prophecies in Daniel are about Alexander the Great. And they were going to come and they were going to end up defeating the Medes and Persians. Then he also talks about you know the Roman Empire that came later. So I personally think that what we're seeing here in the book of Zechariah is very comparable because once again, these guys are kind of contemporaries with Daniel too. Remember, Daniel was around during the reign of Darius. And so I think these four horns just basically represent these four kingdoms, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. They were the ones that had scattered Jerusalem, Israel, and Judah. And then he mentions these four carpenters. Okay? Now, this is where I'm probably right on the four horns part. I could be wrong on the four carpenters part because um, it's not super clear in the book of Daniel, but in uh, what a lot of people teach if you look at history, because when it comes to the Greeks uh, and the Greek Empire, we have no Bible for that history. You know, every, that all happened in between Malachi and the book of Matthew. So I can't prove any of this from the Bible. I'm just going off different things I've read in history. But from what I understand, I believe, and I, I could be wrong in this, I believe, I'm going on, kind of going off memory here, after the death of Alexander the Great, that the Greek Empire kind of split up into four kingdoms, from what I understand about it. And that could be a reference to these four carpenters because they were the ones that were going to you know, break up these other countries. I don't know. Here's what I do know. The vision of the four horns and the four carpenters is basically God showing that He is going to deal with these nations that came after Jerusalem. Okay? And we, if we, we can split hairs all we want when it comes to exactly who the four carpenters are, the four horns. That's fine. I'm not going to waste time fighting with anybody over that. But that's what we're seeing there. Is God, God is just showing, basically, I'm going to deal with these nations. These nations that mess with you, they haven't gotten away with it. I've seen it, and I will, I will deal with them. So, so it's not clear, God, but it is clear God is planning on judging those who came against Jerusalem. And this is a good reminder for us too, because of the fact God hasn't changed. God still pays attention to those who mess with His people. And God is going to deal with those who mess with His people. He doesn't always do it when we like. He doesn't work as quick as we like. But He often does He often does deal with those people. And let me just say this too is just kind of a, a, a side note. You know, we've had we had recently, you know, the Gatheists kind of coming after us, right? Well, somebody was just telling me one of the guys that was coming after us that he's like this new IFB expert who has one of these atheist channels, apparently this guy just came out as a girl. Okay? Now, right, I'm just telling you right, there, right now, that's the judgment of God right there. The guy just came out as a girl. He, I guess he's a transgender woman. Whatever. And, and this guy, he's, like, and the funny, he's a new IFB expert, but boy, does this guy get a ton of easy facts wrong. I've seen him interview this guy. And he's always like giving all these facts about about us, and everybody's just like, "Wow, wow!" You know, he knows so much, and it's like, "Dude, this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about." You know, he just he gets tons of facts wrong. But think about it. It, it makes complete sense to me that someone who watches obviously hours of our preaching 
that person is going to be given over to a reprobate mind. To listen to all the preaching that he has heard and just to reject it and reject it and attack it and attack it with all that he has heard, it makes sense that he is now turning into a trans freak. I'm not surprised at all. And I can't imagine anything worse. <laughs> I'd rather get hit by a truck than something like that. But you know what? God deals with those who mess with His people. Okay? Don't mess with God's people. You might turn out to be a freak. <laughs> you might you might get what they want to call a mental disorder or whatever. You're it's not going to end good. And said a part of me wants to feel sorry for somebody like that. You know, you can't. You can't feel sorry for someone who's been given over to a reprobate mind like that. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But yet, that's what happens. You don't don't mess with God's people. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray you'll help us to uh, learn from these things, Lord. I pray you'll bless this study through the book of Zechariah. Help us to take the time to learn these uh, facts and details so we won't be caught up into false doctrine that's often taught from this book. And I just pray that uh, we'll use these things as comfort, Lord, knowing that You will deal with those who that mess with us and You'll do things uh, according to Your will and Your time. In Your name we pray. Amen.